Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the Progressive Britain podcast. This is the podcast with the unpopular opinion that progressive centre-left politics has a lot to offer the modern world. As a society, we're beginning to open up about mental health. It's an important step, helping to overcome stigma and reach a better understanding of the issues around mental health. But treatment is not keeping pace. As people become more comfortable talking about the topic, how do we keep the pressure up to make sure that provisions are getting better too? I'm Progress Deputy Editor Connor Pope, and I'll be discussing that with Progress Chair Alison McGovern, President of the Labour Campaign for Mental Health Luciana Berger, and Mental Health Professional Joanne Harding. Later today, Chancellor Philip Hammond will be making his first spring statement, having moved the annual budget to autumn. Well, there's not much point guessing what he might have to say. It seems unlikely to spring any surprises, and Hammond has ruled out any new tax or spending measures. Alison, can I start with you? Because you're on the Treasury Select Committee. Can you briefly explain what the point of a spring statement is? Well, so we used to have two fiscal events, the budget and the autumn statement. And it's a good thing to say, you know, that like that's too much and we should have all of our any changes to the uh, tax and benefits system and public spending, uh, you know, all in one go. But the reality is that you have to announce certain things in any case. So even though Philip Hammond wanted to do just one, you know, fiscal event, He still has to announce what the OBR have said about growth and wages and unemployment and various things. So he he basically has to do this spring statement. It's in the law, isn't it, that he has to do two, I think? It is, yeah. So almost all chancellors like come into office saying that they're going to, you know, not be so political and they're going to be like doing things in a better, more um, economists, purists way, rather than being such a political chancellor. But in the end, they all end up being political anyway. So whilst Philip Hammond is making a good show of saying, I'm just going to announce what I have to announce and then sit down. And there's been all kinds of rumours, you know, some, some are saying his speech could be as little as, you know, 
15 minutes, which is like, that is like nothing uh, in comparison. Budgets often well over an hour as a speech. Quite a lot of our Progressive Britain review episodes were longer than that. Yeah, (laughs) definitely, definitely, definitely. So there's been all kinds of expectation management about it. Um, I strongly suspect the reason why he doesn't want to say very much is because there's not very much to say that could be helpful. I mean, he'll want to get up and say, they've revised growth up, they've revised unemployment down, they've revised wages up, and they've revised the deficit down, right? And he'll, I imagine, like, you know, just reading the runes, I imagine he will be able to say all of that. But anything else he'll have to say will be bad, because Brexit kind of makes everything bad, as I point I may have made on last week's podcast, Brexit is not good for the economy. So, he doesn't want to get into projecting the future or talking about what might happen in terms of the debt and deficit in the future, because the closer we get to Brexit, the worse it's likely to get. And I think by the time he delivers the budget in autumn, it'll be about two years since his last one. That seems like a really long period of time to to go without doing a budget. It, Joanne, do you think this is a kind of sign of a government that's just run out of things to say on the domestic policy? Well, I think as Alison said, really, you know, he's probably going to say everything's looking grey, unemployment down, deficit down and so on. But I think from a local government perspective, as a councillor in Trafford, I still see the impact that austerity is having on people and communities. So you can pretend that everything's rosy, but actually the impact on people Mm. is still very much there and continues to be so. And um, Alistair Dodd, had to publish about six budgets, I think, during his three years as Chancellor to deal with the financial crash. Are we expecting Hammond to have to basically do away with this hope that he can't really, doesn't really have to do budgets and we'll see a lot more? I would say no, actually, because when it comes to Brexit, the Tories have let the Governor of the Bank of England take the strain. You know, what happened after the Brexit referendum was basically a lot of money was thrown at the economy by the governor, basically through QE, basically printing money to keep the momentum in the uh, economy going. And what they're trying to do is not do big changes to either the fiscal plan in terms of public spending and kind of basically bank some stuff that George Osborne did to bring more money into the exchequer, making HMRC more efficient. And that will get our public finances in in a better position. That's what they're trying to do. So they're not trying to have big changes. Actually, if people want to get more of a sense of the damage that Brexit is doing to our economy, I would say Philip Hammond isn't, you know, is not going to give any clues, but watch the governor of the Bank of England when he reports. I think we, we need to take a short break there, but um, we'll be talking about this week's big topic, mental health, next. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm June Sarpong, and if you like the Progressive Britain podcast, then we ask you to subscribe, rate, or review it on iTunes, because that's how we reach a larger audience. And that's what progressive politics is all about. In the introduction to today's podcast, I said that people are now more willing to open up and talk about mental health, which is helping to reduce societal stigmas. I mean, that's the impression that I get just from talking to people. But Luciana, if I can come to you first, do you think that's right? Oh, definitely. And we know it's right because society's attitudes in this country have been tracked since the Time to Change campaign started um, under the last Labour government. And we're definitely seeing it much more at the forefront now. We're seeing people, um, particularly in in different spheres, uh, public faces, talking about their own mental health. We've had debates here in Parliament where some of our colleagues have spoken very openly about their own experiences. Um, People, um, famous people, uh, Ruby (laughs) Wax comes to mind, people in in various bands, uh, more and more footballers, actually. Very much a lot uh, more footballers. And, and being really open about it. Really open. And in the past year alone, I think the issue has been even more elevated by the work of the royals, you know, the work yeah. they've done with the Heads Together campaign. So it's very much, you know, we, we know also because it's not just what we're hearing and what we're seeing in, in the media, but... But also, um, you know, from those studies that have been done since around 2005, we've seen a shift in society's attitudes. That being said, we've still got some way to go. And, you know, as a constituency MP, I hear and see it almost every week in my constituency mm. surgery where people come to talk to me about their mental health because they know that I'm a campaign and I do lots of, of work in this in this space. But they say, I can talk to you because I know that you you understand but there was a man that I met just the other week who said, I, you know, I haven't been able to speak to my parents or my siblings about the mental health condition I've experienced for decades. Um, but, you know, there is still that, you know, that discrimination that exists sometimes within families, outside of families. There's that taboo that you know, st- we broke down when it came to cancer, you know, decades ago. And we're still, I think, contending um, within society to, to break down those barriers. Apparently one in five people take a day off each year due to um, stress. And that's a figure that is growing. But only 49% say they feel like their employers are understanding about mental health issues. How do we improve that, Jo? Really, what Luciana said, I think there's been some fantastic campaigns about um, breaking the taboo and Mm. reducing stigma. But we do have a, a, a lot of work to do. Social media plays a great part in some of the campaigns. But interestingly enough, I did some work last week with the Home Office, um, part of the immigration unit, and um, that was about raising awareness. It was a very male-dominated working environment, and there was a clear sense that they they felt weak if they were to talk about how they felt around their anxiety. I mean, some of the men were really vocal and upfront about it because they'd experienced anxiety and it had impacted on all areas of their life, but they felt that they couldn't speak to their wife or partner because it made them look weak. Um, So I do think we need to do quite a bit more work, particularly with men. If we look at male suicide rates and we look at how men network with people. I mean, I, I know that I have lots of friends and if I'm feeling low, or down, I will contact friends and I'll speak to people 
I think that men don't do that quite as well. And I don't want to generalize there, but, but we do need to do quite a bit more work with men. Do we think that if people felt their employers had better provisions around mental health and were more understanding, that they could go to their employers quicker, that actually what we'd see eventually is a kind of fall in the number of people taking time off for mental health? Is that something that... It's not as simple simple as that, unfortunately. The first thing to say about employers is it's it's a really important thing that we need to look at and do more about. Um, And we know because, again, um, there's academic studies that show that if you've got leaders within businesses and companies that themselves are open about their mental health and that can affect the culture um, within those organisations or businesses and and make a real difference. Um, And so that's something that I know that both for SMEs and for for large companies that many organisations are looking at. And a, a a good place to start is to sign the time to change workplace charter which can again really make a difference it's a start of a journey it's not just about a tick box exercise and yeah. signing a little pledge and um, but but just as you know by doing that and starting the journey what, what does it do what does the time what, to change charter what what are the things so it talks it? it talks about um it, there's many different things and all the resources are available online for anyone that might want to look at it in more detail but first of all it talks about an employer treating mental health in the same way that they do physical health and um, that's really very important um when again we're not quite there yet right across society but you know just just making that pledge in the first instance for, for employees to know that if they come forward that they'll be treated sensitively and again in the same way that they would expect to when it comes to their physical health it also commits organizations to training managers to to better um, support their staff that they're responsible for um, within the workplace. And there's lots more that you know you can add on to, to that pledge, but it's, it's a really important starting point. And you know, I would encourage um, any employer to think about doing it, um, and even SMEs um, as mm. well. And in fact, um, in uh, Liverpool City region, and our the metro- best city region that there is, <laughs> FYI. Uh, if anyone doesn't know, that's all of Merseyside and Holton in, in Cheshire. Uh, we just had an event and just the other week. Um, I serve as our Metro Mayor's advisor on mental health. And we had an event for employers within the city region. Again, it's a, a starting point to bring people together to learn from those organisations that are already doing things, other organisations that want to do more and to learn from best practice, to hear from mental health charities, again, that do a really important job in the workplace. But it's not just what happens in that workplace. Mm. It's also making sure that if someone does come forward that if they go to their GP that they are going to be treated well by their GP and um, we've got an issue that more GPs need to do training within mental health they, they, just, they didn't all get that mental health training all new uh, GP trainees are now having a um, psychiatric um, element to their uh, their practical um, experience and that's really great but not all GPs have had that there is a lot of goodwill but um you know, that's, that's an important part of their training. But also, ultimately, we need to ensure that there's services available to people when they come forward. And that's part of the challenge. Like politically, we know, um, you know, the waiting times for too many people right across the country just to access talking therapies is far too long. Uh, in terms of the quality, the provision that people might be able to access, it's, um, you know, there's lots of differences across the country. There is a postcode lottery. Mm. Um, you know, as what's called the IAT program, that, that acronym stands for Improving Access to Psychological Therapies. It was a program started under the last Labour government to improve people's access to talking therapies. It's fair to say how it was originally envisaged is not as how is not how it is delivered today. Mm. Uh, in terms of the quality, in terms of the number of sessions that people might be able to access, there's a, a real um, over-focus now on just one element of that, um, CBT, which is... Oh, cognitive uh, cognitive, cognitive therapy. behavioral therapies <laughs> got that acronym for a second 
Uh, it was meant to be like a whole different range of talking therapies because CBT might be right for one person, but if you've got trauma in your life, then it's not going to necessarily help you. So, uh, and also it was originally envisaged as, as a one-to-one type of talking therapy. More often than not, now we find group situations or people expected to do it by themselves on a computer or in a church hall or over the phone and not having that kind of high quality one-to-one service. So there's, there's an issue in terms of like the, the, the quality of what people can access today. And, you know, Unfortunately, the issues with waiting times means that we've got, in my view, a system that just focuses too much on what we do when someone's in a crisis. Now, that isn't right for the person who finds themselves in a crisis, particularly if they have to turn up at A&E. Definitely not the right place for someone to turn up, you know, to if they're in a mental health crisis. But also in terms of their recovery, you know, we should be helping people earlier on. Not because as labour people, it's the right social and moral reason thing, you know, thing to do, but also financially, it doesn't make any sense to, you know, the costs incurred for when someone is in a crisis that they then have to find themselves, you know, admitted to inpatient care, impacts on their recovery. It's incredibly expensive. Mm-hmm. And so for all those reasons, you know, we've got a long journey to go down before we actually see that real difference that we all want to see. Joanne, you've written for Progress before on something called parity of esteem. Could you tell us what, what that is and why it matters? Well, I can tell you we're far away from achieving what it really should be. And I I can cite a a real example, really. I think it's important to to see how it actually plays out in real life. Um, What Luciana was saying, really, that all too often we end up waiting until somebody presents in crisis. And by then it's impacted on so many areas of somebody's life. I manage a mental health crisis service, an overnight crisis service. And really people have been to GPs, they haven't got what they've needed and things just escalate and people end up, you know, in a, in a very bad place and in crisis. But I took a friend of mine to a local hospital he was in crisis. I took him to A&E. He had lots of physical health checks to make sure that he was fine, which he was, because he'd had chest pain and it was anxiety and so on. So they ruled out any physical causes. But then what they said to him was, oh, I'm really sorry, the mental health team have gone home next door, so there's nobody there to see you. But you can pop over to another A&E across the other side of Manchester, but you might have to wait you know, a couple of hours. God. By then the trust was broken. He was completely crumpled and broken by yeah. this. The next, so I got him home, made sure he was safe. But the next day he turned up at that same place and was told, you've come to the wrong door. Now, really all that needed, so culture needs to change. All that needed to happen was somebody to sit him down and say, come on, let's just get you a cup of tea. Let's see what's going on. He then disappeared. Nobody could get hold of him. I had to contact emergency services while he made an attempt on his life. When he was finally assessed in A&E and they they decided that he did need inpatient facilities, There were no beds across Greater Manchester, no beds at all. He then had to go across to Brighton. His family had to drive to Brighton for seven hours. When he got to Brighton, he was told, well, we're not expecting you. I haven't got your your paperwork. Again, trust broken down. Mm -hmm. He completely disengaged from services. We did eventually get him in somewhere, but then post-discharge, there were no community services. So really parity of esteem, treating physical and mental health the same, we have a long way to go. Yeah, absolutely. And my heart just, I mean, my heart just sinks if I have somebody come to my constituency surgery and, it, you know, quite often people are quite stressed when they come. They've not come to their MP often because everything's great in life mm. and you suspect people are quite stressed. And I just say to people, you know, have you spoken to your GP? Do you think maybe you might need a bit of support? And even as I say it, 
I think, but what am I recommending that they do? Because I just don't believe mm. for a minute that we've got the kind of services and support that would that very stressed person in front of you that would help them just cope, cope with their own feelings about whatever it is that's happened to them. But if somebody came to my constituency surgery with like a broken leg, I wouldn't mm. say, you know, I wouldn't feel like that. It's it's just this sense that we, you know, I feel in, in we're all in Merseyside, we have just, we have not got an NHS that works to help people's mental health. I mean, and that's also part of the challenge. So parity of esteem is something which is actually written in law. Yeah. It was actually exactly. one of the few things that we supported as the opposition that went into the Health and Social Care Act back care. in 2012. is written, you know, it, it's enshrined. It says, you know, that we should have this parity of esteem, this equality between physical health and mental health. We couldn't be further from that. Now, part of the challenge also is that we see it very much through the constraints of what happens in the health services in the NHS, when actually, if I go back to the point we had in the early discussion about what happens within our communities and our services that traditionally were provided by local authorities. Mm -hmm. And we look through the entire life course, starting with what happens in children's centres through yeah. to youth services, through to outdoor spaces, leisure, recreation, arts and culture, uh, to what happens um, for people that are in a crisis that might need a, a drop-in centre or befriending services, not just for the elderly, but mm. for people all ages too. All those things that make a difference to keeping people well in their communities, keeping people com connected, I'm, you know, really focusing on that social capital and those interconnections and that uh, we talked you know, a bit about contending with loneliness. Yep. When we're seeing such savage cuts to our local authorities and particularly also the decisions about how money is allocated, so not just what's in the pot, but those areas with the highest levels of deprivation hit the hardest, like whether it's in Trafford or, or whether it's um, you know, across Liverpool City region, it's having a massive negative impact on people's mental health. And therefore, it's no surprise that more people have to access and go to their GP. And then there's not the services to contend with them in the community because we've seen community services essentially stripped away. And yet we were supposed to have more community services because that was the rationale given for why we've seen now a reduction in over 6,000 beds in mental health. So the whole sector's literally been decimated. And it's not just what happens in the NHS, actually, mm. that's going to make the difference, in my view. If we're serious about contending with our nation's mental health crisis, and I don't use mm. that word lightly, then it's what we do before all then that makes a difference to keeping people well. And that's, you know, for me, where I think we should really focus our energy and attention. Joanne, you're, you're a councillor in, in Trafford. Yes. Um, I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about that kind of specific impact of local government cuts on, on mental health services. Well, really, again, as, as Luciano just pointed out, the impact on communities. I think the focus on um, when people become unwell, trying to wrap services around them, mm. is almost too late when people have got to that stage. It's the early intervention, but it's absolutely critical. Um, we're doing a piece of scrutiny work at the minute on children and young people's mental health. And the evidence is there to suggest that as soon as we put that offer in, so we're working with children from primary school age and secondary school age to be more aware of when they're feeling unwell or what stress feels like or befriending people in good relationships, good positive relationships. If we start to do that early doors, we're less likely to see young people needing the support services of, of CAMS, children and adolescents, mental health services, because that really is in crisis. You know, mm. all too often I get casework where we have young people who are waiting months and months to see a child psychologist. Now, when you are a young person in crisis, you need to see somebody there and then. I just think that's where we are going wrong. And I would hope the next Labour government really makes a very clear pledge that early intervention and early year support would be part of our health and social care offer. On a positive note... 
my little girl had an absolutely fantastic experience of um, mental health week in school. Great. She is six and they did really excellent workshops on what makes us unique as people and how we're all different Mm. and what it might mean to have difficulties and challenges and basic things like what stress is. And she came home and told me and her dad all about it. And I thought... If someone at primary school had told me about stress and feeling upset with yourself for no reason, I feel like that might have been completely different. And so I think, Joe, you're absolutely right. I think if we can think about, like, as you both have said, not just the health service and what that does and doesn't do. And Mm. like, once you get to your GP, what happens? But in every little pocket of society, making a bit of a difference. And so you get to people before it escalates and give people strategies and things to, you know, understand their lives and understanding what goes on in your head. Because I think a lot of people don't, they've never really thought about what depression might be or Mm. anxiety or what that feels like. And that they're that that might be something that you'd want to think through. Well, it's a big issue that we're addressing at the moment, um, trying to hold the government to account on the green paper that they brought out not that long ago on young people's, what they said, transforming young people's mental health. And that's a, a, it's a laudable ambition and something I'm sure everyone in this room wants to um, see achieved. But the challenge is, is that the green paper as set out and the changes they want to affect is, is about early intervention but there's, there's a total absence on prevention. Yeah. Uh, and again, it's, you know, what we, can we do to make that difference to prevent the, you know, that mental ill health starting in the first place? So, for example, I'm on part of the all-party parliamentary group on um, reducing adverse childhood experience. It's a group that started very recently. And uh, we know that a child that has experienced adverse childhood experience, things like witnessing uh, domestic abuse, uh, experiencing neglect, um, being the child of a parent with the substance misuse, any combination of those factors can have a very Mm. negative impact on on a child's mental health. And we should be doing everything possible to reduce Mm. those. There's a scant reference to adverse childhood experience in that green paper, but no thought about how we might actually do something to reduce it altogether. Um, likewise, there's nothing in that green paper about the under fives. And actually, for you know, for many children, when they get to school, they're not school ready. Uh, and sometimes it can be too late because of what they've experienced you know, as, a, as an infant. And yet we also know that the first 1001 days of a child's life from conception to two still determines their life chances and life outcomes. And if we really want to make a difference, that's where we should be focusing even more attention. And again, there's no re- reference to that. So um, through the work that the Health Select Committee, along with the Education Select Committee is doing to this inquiry, I hope that through our recommendations, you might see some progress of the government kind of really taking that issue into account but also um, I think it's important in in, in the context of this conversation and what's absent in that um, green paper is any reference to inequalities and this is a massive social justice issue you know a child of 11 from the most deprived background will be three times three to four times more likely to experience mental health than a child from the most affluent background and therefore you know an issue of concern for us all is you know how can we tackle that inequality Mm. and injustice and top top causes of relationship breakdown financial stress indeed um so i hope that you know, through our recommendations we might see some changes on that front as well it's incredible how many areas come back to you know early years in that sense and and yet so little is still done to really challenge inequalities that, that it seems like it really would kind of dominate entire issues if, if yeah because if if you th- if you think about what sure start used to do 
as much of it was about the mental health of yes. mum and dad parents yeah. as was as was about you know the early education of that child mm. because the two were the same thing when Indeed. in the first uh, thousand and one days as Luciana was mentioning you know making sure that there's bonding going on and attachment, that yeah. attachment and a level of confidence in the parenting so not only that that the parenting is good and you're doing the right things, but also that you feel like you're doing the right things. All of that combats stress in those early days. And I, I'm, I don't know this sphere as well as Joe and Luciana do far from it, but it, I feel sure that all of the evidence is that if you can deal with stress and that sort of thing early on in a child's life, that it's, it's a good investment. And do we think that in order to get better mental health provisions, there should be a more independent kind of national mental health service that kind of has independence from the NHS in terms of management? Or, or is it that it needs kind of better integration like uh, health and social care? Um, I definitely say integration. I mean, you know, mm. we should be looking at how we look at look after people yeah. and treat people Absolutely. rather than one symptom at a time. And the, and the interconnectivity between physical health and mental health. I mean, you know, the, the, the two rely on each other. So we know already that there's, that there's too many people across the country that have to tell their stories sometimes three, four, five, six, many people, seven yeah. times. And mm -hmm. that in itself can be quite traumatic if you're experiencing mental Ill health. So, um, yeah, we should definitely be doing more to bring it all together. And with such a big variation in treatment, does that kind of put uh, weird pressures on the NHS because there's kind of like so many ways of dealing with this? I would say, again, from managing a, a mental health crisis service, I work very closely with uh, emergency services. There is incredible pressure on the police at the moment and they do an incredible job. They are used more and more as social workers now. Mm. If we have somebody that we can't contact, we we will call the police to do a concern for welfare, to get somebody to go, to get an officer to go and find where somebody is. Um, ambulance services get called out to, um, you know, to people that are clearly experiencing mental health and emotional well-being issues. And Luciana said early on in the conversation that A&E isn't always the best place to have somebody. It really isn't. You, you know, if somebody is sectioned under 136 of the Mental Health Act, they're taken to normally um, an A&E department they can be sitting there for five, six, seven, eight hours with a police officer at the side of them. Some of the dignity um, and the respect agenda really needs to be looked at in relation to mental health. So there's an incredible pressure on blue light services, but also on the mental health workforce. To be really clear that, you know, it's very difficult when you're working with somebody in mental health crisis and it does impact on, on yourself and your own well-being. So there's there's a duty of care and employers to look after the mental health workforce, NHS staff, as well as the patients. So, you know, we, we but I think health and mental health should be a golden thread that runs through all mm. of our policies, housing, transport, early years. We need to make sure it's a golden thread that runs through everything. And finally, Luciana, would you could you tell us a bit more about the Labour campaign for mental health, of which you're president? Indeed, I mean this is a, a really fantastic group of people and um, that come from right across the Labour movement uh, who either have lived experience, are clinicians on the front line, or just you know as carers or perhaps just really interested in mental health that have come together. Um, it's it's quite an informal structure. Uh, anyone that wants to get involved essentially can do. We had a rally in Parliament only just last week, and we had many speakers talking about their own experience or clinicians talking about their experience. 
representatives from different charities. It's just a group of people within the Labour Party that are passionate about seeing mental health treated in the same way as physical health mm. and, and rising it or raising it up the political agenda. And we have seen some progress within our own manifestos, you know, that mental health, um, within, for instance, in the 2015 uh, manifesto, you know, had its, its, its uh, you know, particular focus again in the 2017 manifesto and just ensuring that, you know, within the Labour Party, we're really at the forefront of affecting positive change and keeping it on the political agenda and particularly in the, the wake of you know the prime minister that we have today who herself stood on the steps of downing street and talked about the burning injustices of mental um health you know we've got a job to do to hold her account to make sure that her her warm words actually tra- uh, translate into action uh, on the ground and especially given you know the labor party's role in terms of the world of work you know it strikes me that if the Labour Party was formed today, like a whole section would just be on campaigning for better mental health because, you know, whether it's people's ability to earn being affected by their mental health or whether it's the fact that work can cause you stress such that it's a damage to your mental health. I think that would be like, you know, that would be a central plank of what the Labour Party, if we were to like reinvent it today, would be about. I think that's all we've got time for. So we need to wrap up there. But Luciana, Joanna, thank you so much for coming on. And if you're interested... If you're interested in reading more about this, you'll find some relevant links below. Every week, Connor asks a political pub quiz question that's then answered on Friday's show. I've got another topical one this week. Oh. Because, you know, it's uh, it's the Ides of March this week. Beware the Ides of Beware March. Beware the Ides of March, as Julius Caesar was told in uh, in the William Shakespeare play. And it is uh, National Shakespeare Week. It is. I noticed that on Twitter before. I'll we- have to get all over it. I love a bit of Shakespeare. Yeah, so that it, essentially it's a week to promote Shakespeare's work with primary school children and make it accessible and get them into it. So I thought that I would do a kind of Shakespeare question. Fantastic. So my question is, which two American presidents made a trip together to visit William Shakespeare's home in Stratford-upon-Avon because they were such big fans. That's amazing. I don't know the answer to this, you- although although the last president of China before the current one was also a major Shakespeare fan. And oh, really? To Stratford. Yeah, bang into it. Do you think uh, Do you think that question's too hard because I can give a clue if you think so, which might kind of narrow it down? I love a clue. Give us a clue. Okay. So the two presidents that visited William Shakespeare's home did so before the year 1800. So that kind of narrows it down to, wow. okay. to not many presidents. That really isn't. It's before 1800. Yeah. That really isn't that many presidents. No, but that's when they uh, visited, you know. Right. Okay. So send your 18th century answer to <laughs> <laughs> office at progressonline.org.uk or Connor Pope at Twitter. And listen to Friday's show to find out if you win the mug. I'm sure that's all's well that will end well. We need to wrap up now, but we've and, been delighted. And there'll, there'll, be, there'll be no loving labour, lost, lost loves of labour or anything. Okay, we need to wrap up now. Uh, but we've been delighted to have Joanne Harding and Luciana Berger joining us today. Do send in your questions and comments through Twitter, email, or best of all, as an iTunes review. And we will respond to them on Friday's show with the best iTunes comment winning a prize. And don't forget to subscribe and rate because very soon we will be having a podcast live episode. I'm so excited. You've been listening to the Progressive Britain podcast. The music was When in the West by Blue Dot Sessions, licensed under Creative Commons. And many thanks to the brilliant Caroline Crampton who produced this podcast.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.